Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. We've kicked off a new season of live on-stage debates in London on the biggest issues of our day. The latest, which we staged last Monday, considered the motion, the pursuit of growth is a disaster for our country and our planet. If you think a debate about GDP is going to be dull and technocratic, stay tuned and you will be quickly disabused of that notion. Hannah McInnes was in the chair. Um, Hello, good evening. Um, My name's Hannah McInnes. I'm delighted to welcome you on behalf of the How To Academy. Sometimes when you think of a debate, you have a concept, um, you worry that it might not be particularly relevant when it comes to the day, but we certainly don't have that concern today. Our motion is certainly um, as relevant today as it was last week, a month ago, and will be for a while to come. And it is, of course, the pursuit of growth is a disaster for our country and our planet. Um, What feels like a lifetime ago, to me anyway, but was in fact only a couple of months, um, Liz Truss, if you'll remember her, said she had three um, priorities growth, 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 and she wasn't going to let a so-called anti-growth coalition um, get in her or our way. They were people who, she said, prefer protesting to doing, talking on Twitter to taking tough decisions, taxiing from North London townhouses to BBC studios to dismiss anyone challenging the status quo. But I am delighted that two proud members of that coalition um, join us this evening um, to defend the motion. We have um, Ida Kubyshevsky, who is Associate Professor at the Institute for Global Prosperity, and Danny Dawling, who's a Professor in the School of Geography and Environment at the University of Oxford, and arguing against the motion in favour of growth, Robert Colville, who is Director (coughs) for the Centre of Policy Studies and also a Sunday Times columnist, and Sam Alvis, who is the head of economy at the Green Alliance. But of course, with all debates, or particularly this one, it's not uh, a binary yes or no. There's lots of nuances, twists and turns along the way, um, which we will be covering, and as you will hear, and um, which we'll get to. And just just quickly, the way it works, I'm going to invite each of our panellists to get up, and they will deliver their speech for four minutes, and then we will have a discussion between us for around half an hour, Then it will be um, questions, and then we will ask you to vote um, each way. So thank you very much again for being here, and thank you to all of you. Um, And if we could begin, um, Ida, if you'd like to take to the podium and deliver your your speech. Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. So we're talking about growth, and I think the important question is to ask growth of what? And often when we talk about growth, we talk about GDP growth. And the problem with that is that GDP growth is different than development, than improvement, than progress. So then when we look at it, what do we actually want to grow? Do we want to grow well-being, a healthy planet, or do we want to just focus on GDP? It's important to remember where GDP came from. It was never meant as a measure of progress or well-being. Kuznets, one of the developers of GDP, very much warned against it being used to measure progress. It was developed after World War II and the Great Depression in the US when people started realizing we have no way to measure how economic activity functions. And so they invented GDP. And Europe was in 
decimated after World War II. So it was a good way to measure how to rebuild. And it was a great way to measure built capital, the stuff we have. But today, we have a lot of built capital in the world. There's a lot of human-made things. What we're getting low on is natural capital, the environment, social capital, relationships are falling apart, and human capital, potentially. And so then the question is, what do we want to grow? Do we want to grow well-being, or do we want to grow and focus purely on GDP? And keep in mind, in nature, nothing grows forever. Have you ever seen a hamster for all three years keep growing exponentially, or a tree? After a while, they stop growing in size, but develop physically. So do human beings. We don't grow to 10 feet tall, but we develop in different ways. So it's important to do that. We also have to remember that the economy is a subsystem of nature. It is built off of the natural system. Natural system isn't infinite, so why can we say that the economy can be? Eventually, we hit a wall, basically. GDP is a good measure for economic activity, but it's a means to an end. It's not the end goal. What is the end goal? Is it human well-being? We can't have human well-being without a healthy environment around us. And so then, when we kind of start thinking about it, when nobody is saying, for example, that there are countries in the world that still need some GDP growth. Countries where the populations can't afford to have safe houses, can't afford food. Yes, definitely, those countries need more money. But there's a lot of countries that have exceeded that, and GDP growth is actually working against them. The cost of inequality as GDP grows is a big issue. The cost of environmental degradation. So, for example, if you look at GDP, it has three big problems. One is that everything is positive. We have a hurricane, cyclone, typhoon, however you want to call it. At the end of the day, that increases GDP. Would any of you say that's actually a good thing? There's an earthquake. Eventually, that increases GDP. The war in Ukraine, eventually, that's going to increase GDP. Do any of you think that is actually a positive thing in our world? Cancer increases GDP. Nobody said that's good because we need more doctors, more machines, more medicines. That all costs. GDP also leaves a lot of important factors out. A parent staying home with their child isn't counting in GDP. GDP prefers you to go buy a frozen dinner and eat that than go into your backyard and, and pick some vegetables and have a salad for dinner. Because one, you're paying money for, and the other one, you're not. GDP also leaves out inequality. Inequality has been seen to have massive costs within society, but GDP doesn't care whether one person owns all the wealth in the world. It's actually eight people currently own about 50%, as much as the lower 50%. GDP doesn't care. It doesn't care whether it's equally distributed. So there's a lot of things um, that GDP misses. And so globally, Yes, on average, GDP needs to decrease. The economy needs to have sort of an outer wall where we're saying we're going to develop instead of just focus on growth at all costs. We can't be addicted to that growth 
and continue just focusing on that for no other reason, because we've been doing it for so long. So, thank you. So I'd like to invite Robert um, now to make his opening statement. Thank you very much. So, yeah, um, GDP is not, a, is not a perfect measure. The classic example is you know, if you pollute a river and then clean it up, you get uh, twice the GDP for your, for your buck. But, you know, it's a pretty good measure. It's, uh, it's pretty highly correlated with uh, good outcomes and, good, uh, you know, and, and things getting better for most people. Um, over the past 40 years, China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty, the most successful uh, eradication of want and need in the history of humanity. It's done that because its GDP went up. Uh, malnutrition, poverty, infant mortality, all other indices of deprivation have plunged across the world in recent decades because, uh, because GDP has gone up. In, in fact, even in a country like the UK, saying you want the, uh, saying you kind of, we should have a natural limit to the, to the economy is, I actually think, the ultimate example of white privilege. It's us, the people who've, who've, who've got it good, saying to the people who don't have it good, actually, no, you can't come up. You can't climb up the ladder. You can't have a better life. Things are just fine as they are. I mean, anyone looking at the political economy of the UK in the last 10 or 20 years would probably not think that our problem is we've had rampant, massive, soaring, turbocharged, damaging growth. It's that we haven't had growth enough. Now, the, 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 um, we're talking here about the, the, the motion has two parts, which is bad for our country and bad for our planet. There's lots I could say on the planet stuff, but given it's Sam's job, I don't want to steal his... Um, Still is thunder. So I'll focus mostly on, on, on this country. So what's the, the biggest problem in British society, the biggest problem in, in the British economy is a lack of growth. It's, uh, it, you know, it's not an unequal distribution of growth. It's simply that we haven't had enough of it. Um, during the 1980s, average growth per capita um, in the UK was 2.5%. During the 1990s, falls to 1.9%. During the 2000s, even without the financial crisis, falls to 1.2%. During the 2010s, it's been 1.1%. The, the, effectively, it's kind of like we're in an Indiana Jones movie, and the ceiling is coming down and down and down. And what that means is that people can't have as good, as good lives as they, as they want to. Take the issue of, of housing, which is something that I'm sort of pretty passionate about. We just have not built enough houses in this country over a period of decades. And that has had all sorts of calamitous impacts on GDP. It's had all sorts of calamitous impacts on people's lives. Everyone in this room who's tried to buy a house or knows people who've tried to buy a house has seen what's happened to house prices. That's because we have prioritised, effectively, the view from old people's bedrooms over the needs of the younger generation. That has resulted in a calamitous uh, you know, misallocation of, of human capital. In the, in the, it's just it's impossible to get good jobs. It's impossible to buy an affordable house near, near, near the jobs you need. You know, it's, it's virtually impossible to be a teacher or a nurse or a, a, a cleaner who also lives in, in the nice parts of London. We have absolutely, you know, we have absolutely cocooned the privilege at the expense of of, of the younger generation, and that's you know, and that's that's had impacts on people's lives. It's had people on people's prospects. It's had impacts on when people have children. It's had impacts on how many children people have. And that's you know, that's all about growth. If we could get more people having you know good jobs in good places and having affordable housing, not having you know thirty five forty percent of their income devoted you know having to go on paying their rent on the mortgage, that would be a a, a pretty good 
pretty good thing. And you know, right, this is sort of more Sam's area than mine. But 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 growth is also what will what will you know, save the world? What will give us the capital to invest in the technologies which will you know, tackle climate change, which will improve people's lives? There are you know there are currently billions of people every night who go to sleep who who um, who still cook using solid fuels like wood or waste or charcoal, coal, dung. You know, there are 1.6 million people a year who are dying because they are cooking because of the, uh, the impact of, of cooking. There are people who don't have heat. There are people who don't have light. There are people who don't have food. There are people who don't have cars. There are people who don't have meat. There are people who don't have all the things that we, we have and they would, they would quite like. And what gets them that is growth. But also what gets them that without destroying the planet is also growth. It's investing in green, te- green technologies. Um, it's investing in the kind of, kind of stuff that makes people... Uh, Rich, richer and wealthier, and you know, just a couple of a couple of statistics just to round off because we only get four minutes on this. In 1970, Bangladesh was hit by a cyclone. Uh, I'm not sure it did much for their GDP. I think, in fact, it was probably quite bad for their GDP. But because um, 300,000 to 500,000 people died, so many people died that we don't even know to within you know 200,000 how many died. In 2020 a cyclone of the same magnitude hit Bangladesh and 30 people died. And the difference between that was GDP. The difference between that was growth, that the Bangladeshi economy was in a much more robust place. They could send text messages to people using these wonderful things, which developed thanks to growth, and warn people to get, to get out of the way and to get to, to, get to shelter. You know, that's a, you know, like, and likewise, um, you know, over the last century... You know, if, if you're worried that, about natural resources, if you're worried about the impact of the economy, over the last century, GDP per capita in Germany is up 1,000%. CO2 emissions per capita are up 100%. That's not a good thing, but you know, that's, that's a, there's a pretty clear evidence that GDP and um, carbon, climate, carbon emissions don't go together. In the UK in the last century, GDP per capita is up 500%. Carbon emissions per capita are down by half. And that's, you know, that's slight, you, you can adjust that for uh, taking account of some of the emissions we've out, outsourced. But the trend holds true even with that. And finally, in America, since the 1970s, CO2 emissions per capita have been falling, even as GDP has doubled. So, you know, we don't have to choose between growth and saving the planet. We can have both, and we should. Thank you. Danny, if you could, yeah, take to the platform. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm only interested in one thing, which is winning this debate. <laughs> so if you're already worried about the environment or green or ecology or so, and I'm not talking to you because we know you've got your vote. Uh, I'm interested in those of you in the audience who aren't that worried about climate change. The world's going to heat up, but as Robert said, the number of people who die in floods uh, will probably be less. I'm talking to you. 1,700 in Pakistan this year, 641 in Nigeria, dying in floods, one person in a million in the 2020s in natural disasters. So I'm not talking about the planet and saving that. Uh, Robert was right about one thing. The rate of growth has declined, not just in the UK but worldwide. GDP growth in the 50s was higher worldwide than in the 60s. In the 60s, it was higher than the 70s, and the 70s higher than the 80s, and the 80s higher than the 90s, and so on and on. The rate of growth is slowing down anyway, so pursuing it is somewhat futile, even if it was beneficial. Remember that this debate is about whether we should pursue growth as the primary thing. Where Robert was wrong, firstly, was on the correlation. 
Yes, if you take the world as a whole and every single country in it, then you'll find that life expectancy is high where GDP is high, and you get a graph like that. But look at those countries that already have high GDP, and you won't find that it is the ones with the highest GDP growth which are doing the best. It is the ones which are most equal, doing the best on infant health, on education, on housing, on everything. So high GDP growth doesn't help you if you are already rich. That's the first reason why you shouldn't pursue it. The second thing where I think Robert was wrong was when he said that our problems are because we haven't had growth in the last decade. We've been pursuing growth for the last decade. All those Conservative chancellors haven't been lying to you when they've been telling you that they want growth, growth, growth. The problem is the pursuing of it. They should have been aiming for different, better things. And, of course, we did get it at certain points. In 2015, we had GDP growth, but average incomes fell. GDP growth doesn't make people better off, not if those who take the profits take more. Housing. Is growth going to get you more housing? There are more empty bedrooms in this city tonight than there have ever been. More empty bedrooms in this city tonight even if only people who are married with each other sleep in the same bed, we have an enormous number of empty bedrooms and it is rising over the decades as we measure it. Our main problem with housing is its maldistribution, increasingly maldistribution. Think of the housing estates in London which have those no ball game signs where you used to get the maisonette, if there was you and your partner and two kids, then you'd be allocated that on the basis of need. But then you got an offer to write to buy it, and of course you did, because you got a 40% discount if you'd been there long enough. And then you sold it, and you sold it to that man, the man who wasn't going to live in it, but was going to rent it out on the private market, who then rents the maisonette out, out to whoever can pay the highest rent, which may be one of you, a slightly annoyed professional living in an ex-council estate in a... In a Maisonette designed for four. This is why we've run out of housing. And of course, there's all the empty housing, the second homes, the third homes, the tax dodgers, the non-doms. You know, you go on and on. No amount of growth is going to solve that. It will make the non-doms and the billionaires richer. More of you could be servants in future. It is simply and utterly ridiculous. Liz trusted as a great favour. Uh, she did us a great favour when she made it clear what she wanted, growth, 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 because she spelt it out so clearly that even the international money markets went, you've got to be kidding. <laughs> right? So you've got a choice in your vote tonight. Are you going to be with those eco-greens, the cargo bike lot, and the international bankers, or are you going to be some kind of strange fringe group that is different to all of them and somehow believes in the way that Tufton Street do that if we just have more growth, everything will be okay. That, that, is, that is your choice. It's as simple as that. What we should be pursuing instead of growth is fairness, stability, safety, happiness, well-being, education. At the moment, we're pursuing growth. I'll end on this. If you look at the universities of London, and maybe a bit further away from London, but we're being recorded for a podcast, so I'll be careful. The universities of London are growing. They've never had as much income as they have now, not just from the fees that they can charge, higher than the fees anywhere else in Europe, which, of course, are tiny or non-existent, 
because we're growing. But there's fees from all those international students that can afford to pay 20, 30, 40,000 pounds to do a master's at the LSE. That's growth. It's spectacular. It's brilliant, isn't it? They're really learning so much. And it's helping the country so much that we're pursuing this growth in my field in education. You know this is rotten. It's wrong. You know that currently people are being immiserated by it. You know that a third heading up to 40% of children are living in poverty. You might not know that maternal mortality increased in this country in the last few years because an increasing number of young mothers have killed themselves. I could depress you massively about what's going wrong and at the heart of what's going wrong, and luckily Liz Truss got Keir Starmer to stop saying growth, 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 at the heart of what's going wrong is this idiotic idea that if we can only grow again, we can be Empire 2.0 and Britain will be great again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, um, Sam. Last but very much not least, if you could uh, give us your statement. So political allegiances are a strange thing because for a long time, environmental action has been pitted against economic growth. It is something David Cameron and George Osborne thought when they cut the green crap, uh, which now costs us £2.5 billion a year. Liz Trust would put me firmly in the anti-growth coalition, but I don't think that's right for two reasons. GDP and the pursuit of growth offers not only an incentive to act, it offers an incentive to not sit still and watch things get worse. As Eva has said, then GDP is agnostic. It measures things. It does not drive things. But for that very same reason, there is no reason you cannot grow in a green way. It is agnostic to how you get there. It is only a measure of what you do. The second point to note is that GDP is a measure of a material for phenomenon. It's not a measure of policy. It is going to happen anyway. They will be GDP because the population will grow. People will do things. By saying we are not going to have any more growth, you are saying there is no more innovation left in society. There is no more ability to create, to think of new ways of doing things, to think of more efficient ways of doing things. To take climate change specifically, growth is very important for a number of reasons. One, people need to see the incentive to avoid the current costs of climate change. The UK spent £330 million in winter 2019 on flooding alone. We want to not have to do that every year because of the hit to our GDP. Increased heat waves, cancelled trains, sick days, all of these things that matter to actual people are also costing the economy 0.5% a year, according to the EU. The Office for Budget Responsibility has national debt rising to 289% of GDP by 2050. If we do nothing more on climate change, that number is an increase of just 3% in an early action scenario. But acting now to combat climate change is also good for growth. For a start, low-carbon energy. We send 3% of our GDP abroad to foreign countries to import damaging fossil fuels currently. We don't do that if we do renewables instead. Installing a heat pump is massively 
increasing to GDP because it is a more efficient way of generating an output. You are lowering the amount you have to put in in terms of electricity to come up with the same warm home as a gas boiler will provide you. And that is exactly the same as allowing solar panels on agricultural land or driving an electric vehicle or using public transport or cycling over driving a normal car. The transition to net zero is all going to, also going to create new high-value industries with higher skills, higher productivity than the ones we currently see, particularly in green finance and clean energy. And that's before you start measuring all the indirect effects of climate action, whether it's better health, better mental health, ease of getting around, lower congestion. All of these things are growth-enhancing. Put simply, as Ed Miliband has said recently, it is cheaper to act on the environment than to not. So yes, UK GDP, it is a measure of what is happening. And this is where I would disagree with Danny, because I do think those Conservative chancellors were lying to you. They were not looking for broad-based economic growth, which is correlated with high wages, which is correlated with falling inequality. They were looking for growth in asset prices. We continue to make decisions in this country based on other priorities over growth, whether that's the lower migration of Brexit whether that's the freedom of car over the higher growth potential of increased public transport, whether that's nimbyism over more onshore wind farms. So the final point I will, I will make is, what is the alternative? We are talking about the economy here in abstract terms, but really we live in a political economy. It is about decisions. We could have a move to the well-being economy, as David Cameron did in, in some parts and they have tried to do in New Zealand. A whole series of measures makes it more difficult to inform policy. But what I would say is we know that growth can inform a price signal both to not act and to act when it comes to climate change. What is the alternative? Degrowth not only... Um, Degrowth not only sends the wrong signal, but it has a whole series of questions about how it would work in practice. What happens to democracy when we are shrinking the economy? How do you divide up those resources and maintain political support? The climate and nature crisis is urgent. We need to act not only this year, but every year from now. Have we got so many years to write a new political and economic system and hope, with no evidence other than recessions, other than COVID, that degrowth can better serve the environment? The growth is the fastest and most proven way for us to act on climate and nature. And I'll leave it there. Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, a brief history of information networks from the Stone Age to AI, is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all very much, not least for keeping succinctly into the time, and I can kind of hear minds whirring, um, lots to think about. I'm going to come back, you obviously don't now have to stand up um, at the podium for each answer, but it's for um, the next sort of 25 minutes or 30 minutes or so for you to discuss amongst yourselves what we've just, points that you've just put to everyone. But Ida, if I could just first perhaps come to you, Robert 
said that uh, sort of it doesn't it doesn't mean you can't have sustainability, you can't have a green future with growth. They can go hand in hand, and that the argument you put forward is sort of the ultimate in white privilege because for us to say we've had growth and now economic developing com- company, uh, countries can't have it is just the ultimate sort of in, in inequality and unfairness. So how do you come back to him in that? Well, I think one having endless growth and protecting the environment are against each other. Like you can't you can't decouple the economy from the environment. The economy is based on the environment. You can't separate you can't have an economy without having something around it that natural resources. And I don't think anybody is saying that certain countries don't need to grow to some extent. Because there is massive poverty. But I think where a lot of it problem is that there's also a lot of inequality. And that causes more damage than the lack of growth. If we then redistributed some of the global wealth, some of the national wealth, I think that would fix many of our problems. So it's not about just growth at all costs. It's about redistribution. I also thought it was interesting that when Sam and Robert was speaking, they said, we need growth to deal with climate change. We need growth to deal with education. We need growth to deal with lack of housing. We need growth to deal with X, Y. Growth is a means to an end. The end is the education, the national health care, the housing, the whatever else they said, we need growth to do this. That's the end. That's the goal. What if we can meet that goal without having growth? Isn't that the priority? To meet the end. So let's figure out how to meet that end while keeping the entire system. It's important to remember that the environment, the economy, the society, it's all one big system. You can't separate them. If you make a shift and an adjustment in one place, everything else will change too. You can't separate it. It's a, it's a system. So then the question is, why are you saying we have to change this one part of the system and let's forget about how it's changing everything else as long as it meets this tiny little goal we set to ourselves? That's not how it works. That's not how the real world works. If we're allowed to come in on on each other's points, well, I'll just make the simple point. The NHS costs about £120 billion a year, uh, has cost inflation probably 4 or 5% a year due to the increasing price of medical technology, the increasing wages for staff, and above all, the the ageing population. How do you get 3 or 4% 4 or 5% extra for the NHS every year if the economy and the tax base aren't growing? You don't. Let's put that to Danny. Because you, you spoke about fairness, stability, happiness, education, all things that we need as opposed to growth. But to Robert's point, um, how about, for example, the NHS, which feeds into all of those, that we can't sort of have happiness, health, well-being without a well-funded NHS? Yeah. I mean, let's remember that this is all about whether the pursuit of growth should be the main thing. It's not about whether we should degrow, it's about whether the main thing should be the pursuit of growth. NHS came together in 1948... By 1950, there were only six countries in the world where people lived longer than us, and they were all small. All their populations were less than ours. We had the best health in the world in 1950. And then we've gone down the ranks. Despite the fact the NHS costs far more now. It is a wonderful thing, although with the pursuit of growth, it has been decimated. The private finance initiative was put into it. 
an enormous privatisation. If you're in a posh area of the country, about a quarter of your NHS services are, are provided by private sector health companies. If you're in a poor part of the country, it's about 10%. So the pursuit of growth has torn the NHS apart. The cost. Why does the NHS cost so much? It costs far more, for instance, than the health service per capita in Finland. In Finland, they spend less, and you might be unlucky, you might have to wait seven days for an operation from being diagnosed with a need of it. Okay. Sometimes three days, sometimes two months. Why is the healthcare system in Finland so much cheaper? Because they don't have to pay the doctors as much, because they have much greater equality as we used to have in the 1970s. A doctor would have a salary in the 70s today of about £50,000, just over twice average income. Our NHS is made incredibly ineffective and expensive because of rising inequality, which means a whole load of staff have to be paid a whole lot more money than in more equal countries, simply to get our house, because our housing is the most expensive and low quality in Western Europe. All because we pursued growth. It is, it is ridiculous. You've only got to look at other places which have not had growth as the most important thing. And the reason we've had it is this hangover from where we were number one country in the world in the past. It's all like the Americans. Let, let me, let me get, um, so, I mean, Sam, if you want to come back on that, um, please do, so you can make some notes, and then Robert as well, because he's obviously directly against your, um, you know, very strong thoughts about how housing is, is one of the most important elements in this. Yeah, I think, I think we, we're confusing a number of things with the pursuit of, like, broad-based growth here. Private finance initiatives are a way of dodging net, uh, net debt accounting. They are not a way of boosting growth. Um, but... Ida's right. The natural environment, GDP is based on our natural environment. And that is something we can absolutely agree on. The Dasgupta Review Commission by the Treasury says that well over 95% of global GDP is based on a healthy environment. It is in GDP's interest to preserve that environment so that we can continue to have strong and healthy growth. Redistribution, supporting foreign countries to decarbonise and protect their environments is, is really important, whether it's loss or damage or climate adaption or mitigation. The question I have is that we live in a political economy. You have already seen in the pursuit of uh, balancing the books, might add not growth, that the current Conservative government has cut foreign aid spending. How do you convince domestic populations and political actors to provide the space to give more money overseas without a narrative at home that you are growing and the pie is growing for everyone. This question of how you deliver without growth is too much of an unknown to risk the planet on it. And one final point is we need £50 billion in the UK alone of new infrastructure every year to deliver net zero. The UK government will have a huge part in paying for some of that, but it's going to also require huge amounts of private investment. Without a profit signal, I cannot see a route to delivering that infrastructure to get to net zero. Yeah, and the perfect example of that would be, would be onshore wind, where we said to, we created this thing called Contracts of Difference, and we said to companies, hey, if you come and build some wind farms in the UK, we will guarantee that you make some profit from it. And we did that, and we ended up with the you know, 
as you know, the Saudi Arabia of wind, as, <laughs> as, as the government said. I mean, just, I mean, just to come back on Danny's point, um, um, by the way, um, we don't have a massive surplus of empty homes in this country. In fact, we have staggeringly few by um, international standards because we have staggeringly few, staggeringly few houses. Um, well, you, you also said homes as well. But, um, and, but you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm quite puzzled as to how international students are causing Empire 2.0 or indeed cutting the salaries of doctors would save the NHS or indeed how the pursuit of growth has destroyed the NHS because, I mean, there's a classic line in... You know, I, I'm not sure many people in this audience will appreciate when we're quoting Margaret Thatcher, but if you look at the, the front page of the Conservative Party manifesto in 1987, it says, because of the amazing growth of our economy, we have been able to put record sums into our beloved health service. And if you look at the first page of Tony Blair's manifestos, it says, because of the amazing health of our economy, we have been able to put record sums into our wonderful health service. Like, it's, there's a really clear correlation between government having a bit of cash and being able to put stuff into the NHS. The reason NHS spending grows in the, in the 1990s and in the, in the, from between 1997 and 2010 is because we have quite a, you know, we act, we, because the economy is doing quite well and revenues are surging and it, then it turns out they're all coming from the banks and it all collapses in 2008. But, um, but you know, if you look at, look at Mississippi, right, a generation ago, Mississippi, the average person in Mississippi was half as wealthy as the average person in the UK. Now, I mean, adjusting, I mean, admittedly, interest rates are paying apart, exchange rates are paying apart here. But now, the average person in Mississippi is about to become as as rich as the wealthy and have a better as, as a better life than the average person in the UK. That's growth. No, they won't have a better life. Um, so, talking about Mississippi, it's the worst education system in the U.S. And probably close in the world, um, health care is horrible. Maternal mortality. Uh, life expectation is one of the lowest in the U.S. by about five, six years. Prisons? Prisons, one of the largest incarceration. Yes, but they grew. But they grew. There you go. But they grew. They grew. They got growth though. Great. In Mississippi. Um, Sam said the point. He said... Without the, without what was the profit trigger, this won't happen. Now, what what's happened this, this year in Europe? Did France introduce those nine euro a month tickets? You can go anywhere on the train for nine euros uh, because of a profit trigger. Did Italy or was it Spain? I forgot. They both did things. But one of the two of them brought in free public transport until Christmas. All the major <coughs> European countries, apart from us have done incredible innovations this year to help people get out of cars and get onto trains and buses with no profit signal. <laughs> we we privatised our utilities back in the 80s. We did it in an incredible short time. Margaret Thatcher was really good at it. So we've forgotten. We've forgotten the idea of public service and just simply doing it well and not doing it because you can make more money. And you've got to make more money the year before than the year after because growth is all... The government isn't doing an energy efficiency campaign because it thinks grannies will freeze in their homes, not because we privatise the energy companies. I, I think it's wrong. A lot of us have called for energy efficiency campaigns, but it's ludicrous to say that, this, that, 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 the, you know, that, that stuff's happening because of, or not happening here because of the profit motive. But also... I'd argue those countries did do it because of a prof like because of a price signal because there was huge huge money going to Russia because of the exorbitant price of gas. They needed to find ways to reduce gas demand and insulate their economies and individuals from soaring fossil fuel prices. If you grow up in Britain and you've, and you've been in our education system in the eighties or nineties or two thousands, you're kind of taught that everything happens because of a price signal. 
It doesn't. You can look elsewhere and see it doesn't. And if it does, you're in bad trouble. If companies simply operate, or universities operate, or hospitals begin to operate, on how can we make the bottom line bigger next year than last year, things go very badly wrong. If we allocate our housing increasingly in this way, you end up with this increasing number of empty bedrooms and inefficiently used housing. If you sit there in your six-bedroom house on your own in old age, unable to heat the bloody thing, because you know that the longer you hang on in there, the more money the kids will get when you die. And you're depressed because you're alone in a big home. I'm going to move on to just wanting to look at um, in practice. You, you asked, you're interested, both of you asked, you're interested to see how this works in practice. And, we, you know, we haven't, we haven't seen it before. It's, it is in many ways radical. So how, perhaps you could, and there are many visions, I know, but Ida, perhaps you could explain to people how in practice a degrowth world society works. So I'm not actually arguing for degrowth. I'm actually arguing for a growth of growth is not the final goal. All the other things are. Well-being is. If we have to grow in certain areas and grow it in a healthy way, let's do that. And certain countries will probably still have to do that. They still need to get out of poverty. But inequality is the more important aspect. Growing in a right way, learning from the mistakes of the West and growing in a way that is healthy. And I think that's the important thing. There's been actually a lot of research showing. So there's a group called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance where they're focusing on saying we're no longer going to pursue GDP as the ultimate goal but well-being. And it's a bottom-up organization, so any of you can join, any organization join. But it's also a top-down organization. So it was initial three countries that joined were Scotland, New Zealand, and Iceland. Just a minor thing, all three led by women. Just pointing that out. And since then, Wales, Finland, and Canada have joined as well. And there's conversations with a bunch of other countries around the world where they're saying, look, we're not doing this perfectly, but let's learn from each other how to do it better, how to focus on well-being. So New Zealand, for example, has passed a well-being budget. Other countries are following suit because they're learning from New Zealand, how we learn from each other. There's a great book by Peter Victor out of York University in Canada, Managing Without Growth. And he's an economist, and he created a model where he, the question he asked with the model is, can we stop growth and still have a successful society? And it actually crashed on him. Unemployment skyrocketed, health got really bad, etc. So then he asked the question, what would we have to change within our society and economy to be able to stop growth and still have a successful society. And he came up with these 12 points, improve education, improve health care. But there's certain things you can do um, that will solidify society, make it better, reduce inequality was one big one. That you can then slowly level off growth, potentially degrow if need be, doesn't matter what growth does then, because your society is healthy. Let's let, uh, just, um, let um, Sam c- come back on this. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't seem like the issue is growth in that case. It seems like it's an, act, an issue of a lack of action on inequality. If we know that, in fact, increased inequality is a hold on growth, 
if you improve equality across the board, it gives everyone equal chances in society, it improves your, pro- improves your productive capacity and increases your chance of innovation. It's inequality that is hold on growth, not the other way around. Look at Japan. Japan hasn't grown for many years. Now, Japan is not only one of the world's, in the developed world's worst performing countries when it comes to the environment and climate, it is also incredibly unequal. It is far worse than that in terms of emissions per capita. No, so it's one of the greenest rich countries. It doesn't have... <laughs> it, it, it has the most recycling. It's got the lowest on the, on the GDP. Japan is... I mean, that, that, that is just not true. If you look at the Climate um, Disclosures Project, which is a... The Climate Action Tracker, sorry, which ranks every single country in the world based on their broad-based action on climate, Japan is significantly lower it's than most Western countries. It's, it's, it's a carbon pollution capital now. Japan is lower than we're going to, we're, do you know, we'll have to implement, I think, a fact-checker. Baz, <laughs> I'm assigning you to that. Um, but what about to the point of, I mean, Ida's main point is, of course, that GDP, that the way growth is measured doesn't incorporate well-being in, into, into it. it. It misses out so much. Under GDP, you can justify wars, pollution. Yeah, but like, that, that's just ridiculous. I mean, like, no one is, I mean, A... Like you, you mentioned Ukraine, Ukraine's economy, is, GDP has been destroyed by the war. But um, not, no one is sitting there saying, "Hey, let's put, let's pollute and clean up the planet because it increases GDP." No one says that. You know, that grow, the, the reason Ida's view of the economy it's it's incredibly top down and to hope on bass. It's like what what will happen is we'll get the right you know, we'll get the right and right thinking people in the room and they'll tell everyone else how we should set up the economy so that you know we can adjust things so that the you know you know that's no I mean we I, you know I agree with investing education I agree with reducing inequality but I also agree with a society where you know where all of our, our you know our, all of us all of our kids all of our parents get to have the best life possible they get the best jobs they get the, the nicest houses they get the, you know they, they get educated Educated in a health system, in, in a school system, and treated in a healthcare system, which is ridiculously well well funded and, and efficient and well working, and that comes ultimately from from GDP growth. Uh, it's not about getting the best people in the, in the room uh, to arrange these things. The problem is, at the moment, we put supposed best people in the room, uh, and Robert's right. Tony Blair said it. Uh, that it was growth that let him do things. Margaret Thatcher said that he was her greatest achievement. Even Gordon Brown had his main target being 2% GDP growth a year. So you put those people in the Treasury and their main target was 2% growth. We're putting people in the room and telling them that what they have to achieve is 2%, 2%, 2% again. And it doesn't uh, work. This is this motion is about saying that the pursuit of growth should not be the main target, the main aim. We should be trying to improve our health. It, it's, it's, not, it's not, though. The, the motion is the pursuit of growth is a disaster for our, con- our country and our planet. And it's, it's obviously not a disaster. <laughs> but, but we are the, Right. Infant mortality. 20 other countries in Europe are now better than us. We're playing a game with a couple of Eastern European countries. I won't list you through everywhere we are on the international rankings. Because we have pursued growth, Blair, Thatcher, Brown, onwards, Karen, Sunak. Growth, growth, growth. It's been the same story for all of them. And surprisingly, my university taught them all and told them all. We're not doing that anymore. We're not telling people this anymore because we've learned that it doesn't work. We don't have a country 
that falls down the international ranking so fast in terms of the well-being of its people, which has pursued growth and for economic growth as measured by GDP when the banking sector was providing 12% of our GDP and just 4% of the jobs and we thought it was wonderful. That pursuit, pursuit of growth is what has got us in such a bad position compared to almost every other European country apart from Bulgaria, which is slightly more uneven than we are. That's because every other country has grown faster than us over the past 10 years. They've had greater productivity growth. They've had greater wage growth. We have been uniquely hit since 2008. Wage growth has not, if you believe the TUC, wages have not grown since 2008 and are now not forecast to grow because of inflation for years to come. The last time we had a period of wage falling as high as this was 1798 to 1822 during the Napoleonic Wars. We are in the deepest, worst living standard recession that we have ever been in since the United Kingdom came into its modern form. And during those years in which wage growth has been below its 2008 period, GDP has grown. So who's benefiting? Okay, so let, let's... It's my privilege. It's the billionaires, it's the people who own the richest houses who are mainly white, it's the pension funds of the top of the white. It's white privilege that's benefited from a policy of pursuing growth. So I must put that to you because you obviously say completely... It's nearly time to put questions to the audience, but I, uh, Robert, I'd like you to come back to that because you say it's white privilege the other way around. And... Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the obvious thing, uh, apart from us, us being probably one of the most successful multiracial societies in the country, as you know, in the world, as, as witnessed by the identities of our Prime Minister, Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary. But the obvious thing about the last decades, it's been appalling for growth. It's been appalling for growth, and it's been appalling for real wages. If we want to, as Sam said, if we want to get, if we want to get real wages up, the only long-term solution is productivity. And hey, guess how you get productivity up? Business investment. Sam, can I just ask you just to come back? Because obviously, I, I'm sure that everyone on this table would want to have growth and sustainability going in ha- hand in hand. But many people just see that as a sort of dream vision that just doesn't work in reality because profit just doesn't gear towards green policies and sustainability. So, a, a, couple, of the, just a couple of data points. So, the Treasury in their landmark Net Zero review last year, published a week before COP, said that every pound you put into Net Zero delivers 2.5 times the amount of returns than putting it into any other traditional fossil fuel investment. It pays back more to invest in climate and nature than it doesn't. Um, and the second point is, so we often get accused of green growth uh, being a myth and that it's impossible to decouple. And you could talk about relative decoupling um, and the comeback to that would be, oh, we've just offshored our emissions um, and they've gone to, to China and to elsewhere. UK absolute emissions, including consumption, have fallen by 21% over the last decade whilst the economy has continued to grow. Every wave of decoupling is coming faster and faster and faster. We talk, you talked about Kuznets. The Kuznets curve of emissions intensity and GDP growth is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller every time. It is happening, whether we like it or not. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, 
Bjork, Sarah Lucas, and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. I mean, there is an enormous amount to get through, and I actually I can't really believe we, you know, we've been here for an hour, and I feel like we could very well sit here for probably about three, and we would still have a lot to talk about. But it's very important that we get to audience questions. So I'm sure um, this very animated discussion has brought up um, a lot about, uh, you know, in your own minds. So, yeah, if you could raise your hands, and we've got two mics, and we'll try and we'll, let's so we start on this side, then go to this side, this, this lady, this gentleman. We'll try and get through um, as many as possible. Just a, a quick response, Sam. Um, the IPCC report that was most recently published said even if all countries decouple in absolute terms, this might still not be sufficient and thus can only serve as one of the indicators and step toward fully decarbonizing the economy and society. And that was in relation to how we actually achieve the 1.5 Celsius target. So the, the context of absolute decoupling has been now quite effectively argued as essentially not being fast enough. Um, what's, what's your response to that? Yeah, so it's, it's, speed is definitely a good point. And it is a question, which is why I don't think we can afford to hope we can rewrite the political and economic system in pursuit of different measures. So the one thing I would say is that the speed of innovation has consistently been underestimated when it comes to net zero, whether that's in electric vehicle uptake or the falling price of renewables. In 2015, we thought new renewables coming onto the grid for this year would cost £100 per megawatt hour. The year after that, they were already costing £57 per megawatt hour. The, for release last year, in the latest contracts difference, they were £35 per hour. Innovation is basically unforecastable. So I still hold out. Speed is a good point but I still hold out hope that innovation is the way to beat that speed forecast rather than rewriting the political and economic system. And just, there's been a really good example of that recently. Um, an American writer called David Wallace-Wells, in 2017, he wrote a book called The Uninhabitable Earth. And then in 2022, he wrote a... Sorry, he wrote I an mean, essay and then a book. And then in 2022, he wrote an essay called Beyond Catastrophe, which basically said, oh, actually, you know, like, we'd, like it's still going to be really bad. We're still warming much more than we should. But thanks to the innovation that Sam was talking about, we are coming away from the, the absolute worst-case scenarios more rapidly than we, we thought we would. I, I feel like, I do, you know, you might want to come back on that, the point about innovation. Would you like, you know, really, or you'd hmm? like to, yeah. Okay. Just put the smooth in the mouth. Uh, yeah, as I said earlier, I, I'm not so worried about those of you who are worried about the planet, because I think we've got you already. But if you want real innovation and you want to know what really slow growth uh, can produce, look at the two lost decades in Japan, so-called lost decades. The country with the second highest life expectancy in the world and one of the best education outcomes and so on. In Japan, year after year, for decade after decade, the number of people driving cars has dropped. Again and again and again, just the cars going away. Right? That's the kind of, it's an easy innovation. You don't drive a car because you don't need to drive a car because they provide a system to transport you around when you don't need a car. That, and again, it happens in London too, but it can happen, you know, in the north of England where we don't have a train system which works, uh, as you know. The country, the richest country on the planet, which has had the slowest growth over decades, Japan, has done incredibly well in terms of reducing car use, in terms of reducing pollution in other, other ways, and in terms of the well-being of its people who carry on seeing their life expectancy rise and rise. 
Whereas our life expectancy, unlike anywhere else in Europe, was lower in 2018 than it was in 2014. Very briefly, got better in 2019. Then you know what happened, COVID comes along. But, we, but as, as COVID goes away, we're still right there at the bottom. We have an absolutely terrible record because we pursued growth rather than pursuing what really matters. But, but the European countries pursue growth too, as Sam, as Sam pointed out. Like every government pursues growth. I would also, it's important to, um, to ask about Japan very quickly. Would Japan have been able to do that if they didn't have the reserves? Because that's what enabled them to sort of be, have a base. They had the reserves from the years before. Well, those reserves have to do a hell of a good job after your first decade through to your second decade and five years through. Um, you know, yeah. claiming it's from the 1980s that have got Japan to where it is now. Um, it's not, it's, it's the higher rate of equality and thinking about things more government, yes, other governments pursue growth, but those which pursue it less vehemently do better because they pursue other things alongside a bit of growth. And those which pursue growth more, such as the USA, end up with one of the worst outcomes of all the social measures. That's why you don't want to have the pursuit of growth as your main economic, social, political target. Okay, I'm going to go to um, this lady who's got the microphone. Thank you. Is that working? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, my question is for Sam, actually, also. Um, the only hopeful thing that I heard you say that kind of gave me something was that you said that uh, installing heat pumps um, and onshore wind was good for GDP. If it is... Why are the government investing in 100 new oil projects? Why aren't they doing it? Because this government, They want growth. Why aren't but, they doing but it? This is my point. Is GDP is agnostic of how you generate GDP. So this, the government policy is not something I agree with. And I think there are better ways and better outcomes by pursuing other policies, and they lead to higher GDP. But to Danny's point, we, what we are critiquing here is a whole series of other decisions by <coughs> governments to do other things that are not necessarily growth-enhancing. You look at the... So Danny took aim at, um, at Gordon Brown, but under, under New Labour inequality fell by huge amounts. They eradicated homelessness whilst growing the economy at the same time. There is a series of other targets, including, for example, like currently our binding net zero target that go alongside growth and help. But what we are criti- you are not critiquing the pursuit of growth. You are critiquing the lack of other things that successive bad governments have done alongside. Just very quickly, the, no, no. the government is not doing is not not doing onshore wind because, it's, because it thinks, hooray, we love fossil fuels, let's invest in oil. It's not doing onshore wind because it thinks it's really unpopular with, it, with activists and its constituencies. That's not a growth-related decision. That's purely political. I do. I just want to point out that the UK, as well as the US, are subsidizing fuels massively. And part of that is for growth. And yes, the question we're asking here, is pursuit of growth good? And I will go back to it. Why not pursue renewable energy? Why not pursue leave behind fossil fuels? What's growth got to do with that question? Can you, sorry, can you just say, explain to me? I'm not sure why subsidizing fossil fuels is uh, in the pursuit of growth. Because I think that the more subsidies you get, the more fossil fuels you get out, and the quicker you grow. 
but then the more it costs government and therefore the lower the effect on GDP. At the end of the day, the subsidizing fossil fuels is still beneficial to GDP growth. But not, yeah. as, but not as beneficial as renewable energy, yeah, which is a lower cost good for the same outcome. Yeah. And again, they're not doing it because of growth. They're doing it because you know, people vote against you when you raise their petrol taxes. People vote for various Okay, reasons. I'm going to go to um, this gentleman's question because we've got lots of people with questions. Um, yes, you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much indeed. An interesting debate so far. And I feel has started off and led down a track defined from the starting point that Ida started with, which is around the definition of what we mean by growth. So my question, I guess, to both sides is, uh, how can we redefine growth so it takes into account the externalities which are currently excluded from economic calculus? And by that, I mean resource depletion and the ability, for example, of the atmosphere to absorb carbon. These are things which are not accounted for in GDP. So is the problem here not that... Isn't the problem here we're just defining growth in the wrong way? Uh, the New Economics Foundation had a go at this some time ago of producing a, a, one of the many alternative indicators, NERS and NERS's well-being, which has lots of environmental indicators in it, uh, but also inequality. Uh, and I have to come back to this because one problem is there's a tendency not to know our record. The Gini coefficient of income inequality, which is the main OECD measure, reached a peak in 1997. Every year after 1997, it only moved by 1% up or down, moving back to where it was. 1% is the error in statistics because of the size of the survey. In other words, under New Labour, inequality did not improve in a single year, 1997 to 2010. The number of, of children who were poor reduced but the take of the 1% make went up. And those two things meant that overall there was absolutely no change to inequality. But you didn't notice, and Sam said the opposite, because the government were obsessed with their growth level, because that's what they thought that mattered. And inequality didn't matter. It didn't matter what the rich got as long as they paid their taxes, if you remember Peter Mandelson. So there are different measures. The problem is there are many of them. Uh, but the new economic <laughs> Uh, do it best. But what I want to get back to is this idea of it really doesn't matter. We're not going to get this growth again. We're not going to get Empire 2.0. We're not going to become Singapore on pants. It isn't going to happen. In the most productive activity in my home city of Oxford is not the two universities or the hospitals. It's a car park which produces an electric mini every one minute in three seconds. And the money it gets from selling that, the actual earnings, far outweigh anything else we do in Oxford. Uh, the electric mini is now being moved to China and to Germany. The petrol mini has got seven years, it's guaranteed, and that's it. Nobody took it. It was 1% of our industrial GDP that factory currently in Oxford. But it doesn't matter. It's not even debated that we're going to be losing that. Because as long as finance takes over, particularly green finance, which you've really got to watch out for. You know, as long as we somehow That's overall become much richer, it doesn't matter if we lose doing the things which are actually useful, like producing an electric car in this country. As long as we make more money.
Both of you, if you can answer this gentleman's question that we, you know, we actually just need to redefine growth, and also to Danny's point that we are moving in this direction anyway. It's inevitable, so we need to adapt and accept it. And you know, the, both of those points to both of you. Perhaps Robert, you begin. Yeah, well, so on, on on the growth in particular, I think there is a, a, a strong case of trying to capture as many externalities as you can in the. Um, uh, in, 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 your, in your calculations, um, this is the thinking behind things like um, carbon taxes, carbon border taxes, where you're saying, "Look, um, let's um, let's take account of the or, or, you know, of, of the of the impacts of these things. Let's take account of the inputs, um, no matter no matter where they come from," um, which is something that we've um, we supported. But I think, but the, the problem is, you know, GDP. You know, it's like that quote from Winston Churchill. You know, it's the democracy is the worst method of government apart from all the other ones. Like GDP is the worst way to measure an economy apart from apart from all the other ones. And, and by the way, I, again, I don't quite understand what the, as an Oxford boy myself, I don't quite understand what the electric mini plant closing has to do with the determined, the crazed pursuit of growth, as opposed to our failure to build a gigafactory to supply it with electric batteries. But you know, that's just a boring policy answer. Yeah, I agree. Um, you, look, you can try and capture more things within GDP. It's always going to be imperfect. If you pick one other measure, that measure is going to be perfect. I'm broadly, the same as as Robert. I guess the Labour Party is going to the next election promising £280 billion worth of investment in this economy to fix climate change. Um, but also because to sell it to electorate, that is in their telling going to come with jobs, it is going to come with positive um, other externalities in terms of higher wages and all these other things. And it might add, <laughs> they're pitching that as a way of reducing equality. That, that is a plan to grow the economy that is rooted in climate change. The, the, the example of the Oxford Mini is a perfect one because the reason that Mini are leaving Oxford is because we did a hugely damaging thing to GDP, which was leave the European Union. And actually, investing in that plant became unviable. So we managed to eke out a few electric cars on a partially retrofitted factory, but you'd have to build a new factory to build them better. And Mini just went, we're going to do this somewhere else because it's too difficult to sell them. Let's, let's, can I, I, I think we get, I did. So, thanks for that question. There's actually dozens, if not hundreds, of other indicators out there. The big problem right now is consensus. There is no global consensus of what should replace GDP. I would argue with what Robert said. He says, you know, there's, GDP is not the best way to measure the economy, but it, it's the best way that we have. I would argue, actually argue it's one of the worst ways we have. It's good for certain things, like measuring activity. It's not good for measuring progress, which is what we're trying to do. The EU is announcing a new indicator in early next year. The UN is announcing an indicator around September of next year. They are working together to try to find consensus. But that's been the big issue globally, is determining what it is. And Robert said that, you know, we deal with externalities by creating a carbon tax or creating some kind of tax. How many countries in the world have a carbon tax? It's like pursuit of GDP, and oh, by the way, there's an externality here, so maybe we'll put in a tax or a different policy, but everybody hates taxes, so we'll probably not do it. Oh, there's this other externality, let's deal with it with the tax. But no, nobody likes taxes, and it's not going to get reelected. So why not put those externalities into the thing we're pursuing. Let's make it a better pursuit. What are we trying to grow? 
Why is it growth at GDP growth at all costs when it's not actually telling us anything about progress? I'm going to sneak in one more question, and then we're going to have to go to the vote. Um... Thanks very much. I do believe that we're using growth as a general word, and it ought to be divided. The future of humanity is going to depend on us learning to live sustainably with our environment. And if we can't do that, we're all sunk. So growth should be, if you're heading in the direction of sustainability, that is good, constructive growth. If you're moving in the head of more bombs, more devices, more consumers of things like fossil fuels, then that is disaster. We can't just have with one word growth. We need to define that is going to give us a future and the sort of growth that is not going to give us a future. So I think that's the question for Sam, because obviously there are lots of words, green growth, sustainable growth. Explain. This is exactly my point, is that GDP is agnostic of how you do it. It is not a measure of what you're doing. It is a measure of what happens because of what you did. So why pursue it? That's the question. But my point is, everything to do with net zero delivers faster growth than not. That little car plant matters to me because all the other boys apart from me went to work in it. Making an electric mini. It's going to go. This is a huge site on the edge of the city. What do you think is going to happen in seven years' time to a huge site on the edge of Oxford? What is the growth industry? Can you imagine what it might be? Some of you could make a lot of money out of this. Okay? Let's call it Oxford County University. Bigger footprint than the rest. Where are you going to get the students who can pay your fees to come in? Where are you going to get them from the rest of the country? And they're flying through the flow. They're going to fly back at weekends for parties in Goa or the head off to Mississippi if they haven't come from there. The, the green footprint is going to be absolutely enormous of this. But it won't matter because it was the economically most sensible thing to do once you've lost that car plant, if we were to lose that car plant. And that is my worry. I agree with you completely, sir. We should be looking at sustainability and things that are more sustainable and define it very widely. It's about happiness, well-being, mental health. It is not just about carbon. We should be looking at that. And this measure invented for a wartime economy in the 1950s has served its purpose and it's time for it to go. I'm going to give you, Robert, the chance to come back to that before we go to the vote. Yeah, um, well, I mean, I think, you, A, GDP and growth are not quite the same thing, and we, we can be affecting them too much. But, but the weird you know, Danny has said throughout, you know, it's weird that we're arguing about growth because it's going away and we're having less of it anyway, and that's just a great big thing that's happening across the world. And that's kind of right. But the other big thing that's happening is growth is becoming less resource-intensive. Mm. The economy is moving from a physical economy in which, you know, we build things like whether it's electric minis or steel girders or whatever it is, to an, to an intelligence economy, to a services economy, to an you know, intangible economy. The, the resource-intensiveness of the economy has... Of, of, pretty much every aspect of the economy has been falling dramatically uh, in, 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 recent, in recent decades. And obviously, you know, we do need resources to build things like wind turbines and solar, solar panels and all the rest of it on, on, on quite a colossal scale. But generally speaking, we are getting more, growth, more output for less input. Year, you know, that's, and that's, that's been the, the, the trend, which should encourage us all that we can continue that trend and accelerate that trend and ensure that we can have growth without, um, without destroying the planet. 
Right, okay, well, before we all go and have a very much needed drink um, and work out all of the things and think about all the things we've been talking about, it's time to now hear what you've decided, having heard all of these brilliantly put forward arguments, animated as they are. Um, So our motion, as we said at the beginning, was the pursuit of growth is a disaster for our country and our planet. So I'm going to ask you that if you agree with Danny and Ida that it is a disaster for our country and our planet um, to put your hands up and, you know, high and boldly. Okay. Okay. Um, And if you don't agree with that, please put your hands up high and boldly. Okay. I think that um, is a very clear indication that... uh, the motion is agreed with. So you have both um, agreed to done a thing. Um, but well, I really, really thank you all very, very much um, for your contributions. It was absolutely fantastic to have you all. And no doubt we'll go on. And the podcast of the recording um, will be released shortly so you can tell all your friends who weren't here. Um, so thank you all very much indeed for coming. And thank you very much to my four brilliant panellists. This week's podcast starred Ida Kubashevsky, Danny Dawling, Robert Colville, and Sam Alvis. The moderator was Hannah McInnes. The episode was produced by me and Esme Bright, and we have help from Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. Listen back to the first of our new debates on the war in Ukraine in our archive. And sign up to our mailing list to find out more about how you can join us for future debates in person. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.